Welcome to Paradox Jukebox, an unconventional podcast for the unconventional music lover, brought to you by Music on the Move Studios, a woman-led company working to help musicians move their careers forward through education and live events. I'm your host, Katie Thompson, and holy crap, am I excited. It is season freaking three, you guys. Season three. I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around this because I'm still navigating these podcast waters as best as I can. Half the time, I really feel like I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but it's cool. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> we're, we're still a five-star rated podcast on iTunes, so I think I'm doing something right. So uh, before we actually get into this episode, I would like to take a moment to talk to everybody about our Patreon. We are launching an official Patreon for Paradox Jukebox, and I'm really excited about it because it will bring content to all of you super fans who just can't get enough of this podcast and and support it. And so first and foremost, I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our listeners over the 35 different states in the U.S. that are listening and also to the 27 different countries. Hello to all of you amazing people. Thank you so much for supporting this podcast. So with that being said, there are three different tiers in the Patreon that I want to talk to you about. The first tier is our loyal listener. And so for our loyal listeners, we're going to make the video content accessible to you for every episode that we possibly can. So all of our loyal listeners get the video content that comes with every single interview or mini-sode. Now for our Paradox patrons in our second tier, you not only get the video content, but you also get the content before everybody else. So you will get an early release. And then for our third tier, which I am lovingly calling the Jukebox Junkies, for our Jukebox Junkies, you get the video content, you get it early released, you also will receive a Paradox Jukebox Cup and Magnet. And then we are also going to open the floor to the Jukebox Junkies to ask our guests anything. So that's right. You get to do AMAs. I will tell you what episodes are coming up. That way you can say, hey, I want to ask this person this question. So as soon as you go to the Paradox Jukebox Patreon, you can sign up for whatever tier you would like. And then we will start rolling out content as everything gets released. So thank you so much to everybody who has been supporting us. Thank you for all of your your amazing reviews that you have left. If you haven't had a chance to leave a review yet, please head over to iTunes or Spotify and leave us a review. And then if you would like to reach out to me, if you have guest suggestions, or if you just want to ask me a question too, you can absolutely reach out to info at musiconthemovestudios.com. Thanks, guys, for everything. I really appreciate it. Okay, enough with the heavy and enough of me getting emotional. Let's move into what the premiere episode of season three is. I had the honor and privilege to sit down with bassist extraordinaire Carol Kay. She was a session musician back in the late 1950s through the 60s and 
just about into the early 70s. I think she said she kind of got out of it around 1969. And she was a part of the Wrecking Crew. And if you don't know who the Wrecking Crew is, they were an elite group of musicians back in the late 50s to the early 70s that were responsible for turning out all of the number one hit records through that entire time period. Okay, so all of these musicians, well, the majority of them were jazz musicians, and they had an innate ability to just create lines on the fly, be it a bass line, a guitar riff, or melodies, hooks, all of those things. This group of musicians, they played so well together, and they fed off of each other, and they were at such a high caliber that all of the bigger producers... And that time period, we're like, okay, I want this group of musicians because I need them to do X, Y, and Z. So just to name one massive producer that everybody's heard of, or should have at least heard of at one point in their life, is Phil Spector. He was responsible for the big wall of sound and just making his recording sound huge. So he would have all of these session musicians from the Wrecking Crew on each of his recordings, and they were just turning out hit after hit after hit. So Carol will explain more about what a day in the life of one of those Wrecking Crew members actually looks like, and we'll, we'll let her talk about that. But I do want to just give you an idea of the caliber of artists that Carol has worked with through the course of her career, just to name a few. And there's a lot, because she is one of the most recorded bassists of our time, with some 10,000-plus recordings that she is mentioned in, and there's many, many more where maybe, you know, the, the liner notes kind of just, you know, disappeared over over time. But but yeah, so anyway, a couple of the artists that she's worked with, the Beach Boys, Brian Wilson has gone on record saying that she is the best bassist in the world. I happen to agree, but, you know, who am I? Ray Charles, the Righteous Brothers, Johnny Mathis, Nancy Sinatra, Sonny and Cher, Ike and Tina, Joe Cocker, The Monkees, Frank Zappa, and a slew of others. She's also been credited for a lot of work in uh, film and TV. So shows like MASH, Mission Impossible, The Brady Bunch, Adam's Family, Kojak, Hawaii Five-0, Wonder Woman, and then a couple of movies, to name a few, would be like On Any Sunday, Walk, Don't Run. I mean, it's just, ugh. So many, so many. And that's just that's just the tip of the iceberg, friends. This woman has been responsible for some of the music that literally changed my life and probably yours, even if you didn't know it. It's fine. Um, later on in the episode, she actually talks about, you know, what it was like working with Sonny and Cher and recording the bass line for The Beat Goes On. Bum, 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 bum. Ugh, snappy. It's so good. It's so freaking good. So, okay, without any further ado, let's jump into this episode. Thank you for being an amazing, amazing audience. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting us. Please consider becoming a member of our Patreon. Links are in the show notes for that. Without any further ado, this is Carol Kay. All right. What's, well, the, what's the first question? All right. My first question is... Um, how long have you been teaching private lessons? Oh, well, I, I started to teach um, when I was about 
14 years old, you know, because my, my teacher kind of taught me fast, and, and then I, I learned fast because, see, the only thing that we had back then was music, you know. It wasn't like today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so it, it, everybody played an instrument of some sort, and we sung songs and stuff like that, you know. But to, to talk about the... Nineteen forty nine. That's a long time ago, you know. And so that that's what I started to teach them. And I taught uh, as long as I uh, played gigs and all. You know, I was on the road for with a big band for about a year and a half. I was married to my first husband, who, who happened to be the bass player in the band, by the way. Oh wow! So, so that helped, you know. So we talked about nineteen fifty four, fifty five, and we 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 played the, the nicest of places, you know, because it was for a, a, a big band. That was quite well, well known in those times, you know, that 1954, 55, and we toured, toured all over the, the USA. So that during that time, I wasn't teaching, but yeah, I, I was teaching all the time, up until I started to do a lot of studio work, especially on bass. But when I accidentally got put on bass, you know, because I started studio work in 1957, and then in 1963, the bass player didn't show up at Capitol Records, and they, they, they put me on bass. Somebody had a, bass, a Fender bass, and I started playing it, and I thought, you know, this is this is much better than, than playing the rock and roll stuff on guitar, uh, uh, because I was a, a, a jazz guitarist in my solos and all that, the jazz clubs and everything. It was fun in Los Angeles, there, there where I lived. Uh, and then I, I accidentally got into studio work in 1957 on guitar. I did the... Um, uh, the, the, the some of the Sam Cooke things I, I played guitar fills on and and uh, the, how I got into the studio work is, is, is kind of wild. You know, I, I was playing in a jazz group. I, I, I had divorced my first husband. I kept two kids. And, and and I was working a day job too because in, in jazz you don't make quite enough money to, to raise a family. So I had my, my mom and, and my two kids to take care of. So so I worked daytimes too. And then I played most every night in, in the jazz club of, of Los Angeles. And it was nice back then. There were no drugs or anything. Um, I'm sure that some of the guys used drugs, but you stayed away from them at that. You know, about half of the jazz musicians were kind of in the pot and that kind of thing. And they, they smoked in the back room and you, you stayed away from it. You know, the other mm-hmm. half... Just kind of would drink or something. I never smoked. I never drank. I I, I think I probably had about ten beers in my whole life. You know, <laughs> that that's about it. But I never learned how to smoke. I, I thought that was kind of silly, you know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I'm I'm one of those people that was grew up poor. I grew up very poor. So I, I worked since I was about nine years old scrubbing floors in in the in, in, in the projects where we lit. Um, lived in in the in the port t- town of um, Wilmington. Uh, we lived in the projects there after World War II had stopped, you know. And so, I, I went to work scrubbing floors and things like that to help put food on the table because uh, um, my, my mom and dad had split up. My dad left the state and all that stuff. So anyway, but you know something, when you're a kid and, and, and uh, you're able to make money, you feel strong and you feel good about yourself, no, no matter what, say, because you're able to do things to take care of yourself and your family. And that that's what makes you feel great. You feel very strong, man, you know, to do anything. 
And so I, I, I would play my little jazz gigs and everything on guitar, and I did that. And then I got married, and then we, we traveled and, uh, on the road in the 50s in a big band, and I accidentally got in the studio work when, when, the, when the guy that was doing the, the Sam Cooke bass came into the club. He heard me play jazz uh, uh, guitar, the soloing and stuff, and he liked it. He, he wanted to hire me to do studio work. I said, who's Sam Cooke? I don't know anything about that stuff. You know, in, in jazz, all you know is jazz. You know, you don't know what's going on in the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And so I got down there to the date, and here's Sam Cooke. He was singing good, and it was fun because you're, you're, you're working with the same kind of jazz musicians that you work with live, only there's no drunks to have to put up with and there's no drugs in the back room or anything. You right. know? The, the very clean business and made some good money. I thought, oh, this, uh, this is going to be good. People are nice and, and you don't have to put up with drunken people or anything. You know, So that so I stayed doing studio work. I did guitars on some big hits, uh, in, in, including the, I mean, the, the Richie Valance thing. So I did the guitar, um, just, just the background on that, you know, because he he, he played his own solos. And I got into a lot of records. I remarried. I had another kid. And and by the, the early 60s, um, uh, my husband and I weren't getting along. He didn't like me. To, to work with men, and mm. and we, we, we just couldn't see eye to eye on anything. And so after uh, I had the three three kids and everything, I mean, I, I divorced him. He, he wasn't good enough for my kids, too, you know. Yeah. So anyway, so I kept doing the studio work and taking care of my kids. I had I had a, a lady live in. I, I paid her well, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm accidentally thrust on this base, and I thought this was a lot more fun than than, than playing guitar, yeah. and and I, I could create lines on it. And you know, most of the bass players back then they had three bass players on a day on all the dates. Wow. They had a string bass player and they had a Fender bass player, and a and what what they called the the bass guitar, which is really a guitar tuned down an octave, it's six strings, and, and it's called the, the Dano bass guitar. Mm-hmm. They had those three basses playing dum de dum dum de dum and I kept hearing basses different to to ex, uh, explore and do some other notes and bum ba do ba do ba ba do ba do ba do bo 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 do you know I heard the rhythms and everything and I thought no it, it needs something so I played some of those little, little lines on guitar and I think that, that that's why they put me on bass in 1963 and th- this was about the time that I, I was splitting up with my second husband and I had the, the little baby I had the three kids and my mother and then I had a living to take care of it so hell you know <laughs> <laughs> then I went for, for broke with all studio work. I didn't have to turn down dates to please my ex-husband and right. stuff like that anymore. I was free, you know. And so I made sure that my kids were well, well taken care of, and I just worked day and night in those studios. I never saw so, I mean, so, so much money in my life and the respect that you've got from all the businesses. Oh, you work in the studio? Come right in. You know, yeah. you were welcome everywhere in town, man. You, you were uh, associated with 
people on drugs or anything because you you don't do drugs and do studio work you can't do it you know so oh, they, yeah. they knew it was a real clean oh no you can't you have to you, your drug was coffee you, you drank <laughs> coffee to stay awake because it got boring you know sure no no pe- people on drugs can't create li- like we could say they, they, they don't know how to create like that we're, we're taking music we never heard before in our lives and we hear it and we either write it down or, or some chord starts are written and we figure it out and we were able to create lines and a platform of music around that piece of music three four five tunes a date a date was three hours and then we we we'd never hear it again you know you go you pack up and go get out of the studio to go to another studio do the same thing in another style of music you might have ray charles at night time and then you got the Beach Boys in the morning, and you got uh, uh, you, you got these hit hit singers that you played with, uh, Bobby Darren and uh, all these people too. All kinds of styles of music you never heard, and 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 you create lines to make it into a hit record. That's what you did. You got paid very well for for that, and so you you move on. Now on stage, on stage, people work stage. And, and and they probably work what about three or four stage concerts a week that about not nine to twelve hours. We work forty, fifty, sixty hour weeks, Oof. day and night on music we never heard before. We make it into hit records. We we're not rock bands. We're jazz musicians and former big band musicians. That's our job is to make it into hit records. We we don't sit around them. Hear those records? We, we don't care to. We, we didn't grow up with that music. It was music for, for the audiences. You know, right. that, that was our job. Now we're, we're working day and night, mostly playing music we, we never play. Rock groups they, they use about a few tunes and they play the heck out of them for years. Right. We, we're playing different music every day and, and making a lot of money. We're, we're making the, the, the doctors' fees, so. Uh, you know, to good money, but yeah, it's it's a struggle to try to get enough sleep. That I don't think anybody slept much in the '60s. It was <laughs> it was booming in the '60s. It was the movie scores, and I got on um, making movie scores. And and uh, Quincy Jones would, would not do a, a movie without me, and p- people like that. But, Lalo uh, Schifrin and uh, Michelle Legrand and everything. These were wonderful, wonderful composers. The, the, the music was more fun than rock and roll. But 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 the rock groove, too. You know, the rock and the pop tunes and the soul tunes. I, I, I enjoyed creating bass lines on, on all of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that, it, it, does that answer your question? <laughs> oh, for sure. I just, I, I love it. I'll, no, 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 uh, not at all. I, I love it when, when my guests go and the coffee's doing its job. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so when you were, so when you were doing all of these dates in the studio, I mean, you're working like fourteen to sixteen hour days. Sometimes, sometimes. If, if you look at my log, uh, I post pages of my log on Facebook sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's only one date a day, and then I've got to take the kids to the doctor or something the rest of the time. And then some days it's four or five. I, I think there's a few times when it's five dates a day. Wow. But dates uh, 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 were usually three hours long, but when, when you're doing an ad, you know, like, like a gum ad or or some other kind of ad, then, then 
And that, that's usually about an hour. See, we work from um, 9 to 12 or from 10 to 1 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then we'd hurry up and pack up and get, grab a quick lunch if we can. We'd work from 2 to 5. And then and then if you had time, you, you'd run home, mm-hmm. you know, for, for dinner. Uh, most of the time, I stayed in town and worked, you know, from 6 to 7, I, I'd do an ad. And then you had a date from 8 to 11. That's a full day's work and nighttime too. See, and 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 increasingly, I was working more like that than it was one or two days a day. And you even worked on Christmas sometimes. You know, wow. you you bring the bring Christmas gifts home in the bag. You know, the kids <laughs> can remember that the loot's in the bag. <laughs> you know, but but it was good loot. I made sure that they were taken care of. I had a a, a great. A great lady from Europe who uh, I hired to come over and, and uh, take care of my kids. She, 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 she was, I paid her health and her dental and all that stuff well. It, it cost me a lot of money, but my kids were well taken care of. And she, she lived with us for about, uh, for I mean, for about eight or nine years, something like that. You wow. know, before she went home to Europe. Yeah. You know? So it, it, it was a, it was a struggle to get enough sleep. Yeah, you know, and and that's why I didn't date anybody. I didn't want to go out with anybody. I was kind of burned from two marriages that went sour. You know, most of that's my fault. I just, I, you know, you didn't have much choice back then. The, the men were all married. I, I'm the generation before the boomers. See, and that there's not too many men who were sober back then or or, or unmarried. They were usually married, and you don't. Uh, you don't date the people you work with, and you don't date the married men either. You know, right. so that, that was it. I, I was very strict in a, in a sense with my own uh, health, you know, because you had to be strong to be able to to work those hours. You know, we, we 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 ate pumpkin seeds and things like that. You know, <laughs> we, we had health food, you know, to keep going and coffee. People say, oh, you must have used drugs. I said, you don't use drugs and, and create hit records. No, you can't do that. I haven't found a druggie yet who, who, who was creative enough to, to do that. Uh, <laughs> they, 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 they usually can't even tap their foot in time if they're drugged up. That, yep, but that's for sure. You, you do need the coffee. You've got to keep the coffee going, see. So, because you're sitting there waiting for the booth to get done with whatever they do in the booth, you know, there's all kinds of hold hold ups and hang ups. Because every take you do uh, has to be like like a take one. It doesn't matter if it's take thirty four or what whatever number take it was. You have to have that spirit in in, in a hit record, see. So the only way to stay awake and wake while they're doing that. And, and and to keep your, your your energy up with coffee, you know. <laughs> and everybody drank studio coffee, the kind that you put a plastic spoon into and the plastic disappears. You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, that tells you how much coffee we drank, you know. I bet that was tough, especially with uh, Phil Spector setting up microphones in the bathroom. How did you... <laughs> Well, no, it wasn't the microphone in the bathroom. It was the echo chamber. Oh, okay. That had lines that ran through that tall ceiling in the in the in the girls' bathroom. So oh. when I went, so when we took a break, Bill says, "Carol, don't flush the toilet," you know, because he's doing playbacks. You know, 
He didn't want to hear toilet flushing in the Oh, that's hilarious. You know, a a, a lot of people remember him as kind of crazy, and they think, sure, he got crazy. Yeah. Everybody got crazy during the Manson murders, which is 1969. Everybody started carrying a gun on their leg because most of us were around him or met him. Some of our group worked for him. So all of a sudden you had hippies that were drugged out in Hollywood and they were attacking musicians on their way to the record dates in the daytime. So it got scary in 1969 at the time of those murders. Yeah. And I think that's the start of his downfall, too, because here's a young man, uh, Bill Spector, young man, kind of spoiled, I guess. I don't think he was spoiled, but he grew up rich and... He didn't know how to talk to people. He he really never grew up. He just suddenly got rich, and and he was good, good, great at what he did. He loved to kid with us a lot. You know, some of the guys didn't like it, and the other half uh, half of the guys loved him. The other half couldn't stand them. You know, so <laughs> he, he he wasn't bad then. He loved my kids. I bring my kids down to his record dates, and he was very very nice to my kids. He he loved my kids. It seemed like, you know, and, and um, my son loved to sit next to the drummers, you know, and that's how he got to know Earl Palmer, who, who, uh, who Bill Spector used a lot. He, he used Hal Blaine mostly, but he, he used Earl on quite a few hit dates, too, you know, so Earl taught my son how to play drums. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he's had, had a big career in drumming ever since, you know, because those two struck up a bond, you know. So there were good, uh, a lot of good things that happened in the dates too. But I think that the Manson murders really started something. It started the downfall of, of, of the recording industry in 1969. It started Bill, I'm sure, into his gun stuff. Now you don't take guns. I heard about it in the 70s. You don't take guns and shoot around in the studio. My God, oh. you know so. So m- m- most of us weren't working for him by that time anyway, so, mm. you know, it didn't matter. But we, we heard a-, a few things about it, and we-, we thought, what's the matter with him, you know? Yeah. Well, n- now we know, you know. Yeah, well, that's, that, I mean, it was a tough time, and it sounds like it was just, you know, the the culture was just really scary to be in. It It finally got rotten. It, finally, it started out wonderful. Everybody loved the music. We, we loved what we were doing. We loved the singers, especially. The singers were great. You mm-hmm. know, Lou Rawls and all those guys. Wayne Newton was a good singer and that nice young man. It, it was a good business, and it just kind of turned rotten in 1969. And a lot of it was the fact that a lot of young people started to enter in the business that didn't know a, a thing about music. And they, they 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 had their eyes on on the on the bean counting, you know. It, it, making money was the only thing, and that, then the quality of the music kind of fell down. And we, we were all tired by then, anyway, you know, yeah. all, all worn out from not enough sleep during the sixties, and the music got rotten and everything. So we we, we started quitting one by one. Most of us stayed in the movies, so and and the TV because the music was so great, you know. Yeah. It was, 
great to read those uh, composed parts, and I, I even got to invent a lot, a lot of lines, even in the movies and the, and the TV show work too. Wow. And it was fun. It was great music, you know. But then I got tired of that because I had written some books that took off. People were buying them all over the world to learn how to play bass from, and and then I, I was back teaching again, and and I love to teach, you know. And I was out out doing seminars and play, being on tour with jazz groups like this. Too. Joe, Joe Pass and Hanson Hawes and everything. It was fun to play jazz again, this time on bass, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, 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 but I always wanted to get back to guitar, and I finally did years later on. You know, I, I married a man for a short time, and I got hurt, too. I got hurt badly. Mm. And so I, I needed some surgery later on to correct, you know, and after I had the surgery, that then I could go go back and play play some more uh, back in nineteen nineties and two thousand. You know, so oh wow! That's about it, you know. But I I kept going with the business and everything. That that was it. So yeah, yeah. And and the kids grew up as they do, you know. Kids grew up and they had good, good lives and everything. I'm proud to say, you know. Well, and you know, let's let's talk about some of the you know your your books that have been used worldwide in, in guitar and bass education. You know, can you talk about one of the most common problems that you see happening in music education today? Oh, uh, common problems is just ignorance. <laughs> they they don't know how to teach jazz for one. They they think it's scales, you know, because you have former uh, musicians that played rock and roll that weren't in on the jazz days of, of the 1950s. You know, you have to be there to, to know what I'm talking about because you formulate your solos from chord notes. Mm. And the way that they taught back in the 40s and 50s was always with the chords. The, the songs go with the chords. Well, rock and roll, you have about three or four chords, you know, right. standards and jazz, you have quite a few more, yeah. you know, and, and you learn how to move the chords with phrases and, and everything, you learn how to create solos, like you're talking, see, it, it, it's another language music is, and you learn it from learning the chord notes and learning how to uh, uh, invent phrases from chord notes. Never scales. Scales are traveling notes, da 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 da, da you know, or or half tone notes. You know that that's okay to travel from one chord area to another chord area. Play, they're playing around the chord notes like that. That's your soloing, not not no scales. No scales will, will, will put an audience to sleep faster than anything, or worse, <laughs> or worse. And and, and I blame. Some of the jazz musicians were doing it in the 60s when jazz work started to go downward, you know, because it was being replaced by rock and roll. Say. Mm -hmm. Rock and roll was closing the jazz clubs. They reopened as rock clubs. So, so they, they, they would play like uh, outside music. Outside music means outside the chords. Uh -huh. and, and they play. Da -da -da -da, da -da -da -da. That didn't mean anything, but it was using little jazz licks here and there, but it didn't didn't say anything like it used to. See, it's, 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 it's not a, a jazz talk anymore. It's just phrases that, 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 that don't mean anything. And so that's what happened there. And they call that freestyle jazz. They still try to do that with, 
with these uh, molds. We never had molds back in the 40s. We stacked our triads. We played on the upper level triads. It was never called molds, you know. So it's the way that they teach it is totally wrong because it, it's ignorance is what it is, you know. They, they don't know how to do it. Uh, unless they've taken from a real jazz musician teacher. But uh, sadly, most of them are gone now, see. So it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sad situation right now because schools are charging a lot of money to learn BS music. And that, that's wrong. <laughs> None of us went to a school to learn how to play. We went to private teachers. And you, you get your, your, your home base going with a private teacher and learn. Private teachers back in the 40s and the 50s could get you out playing gigs in three or four or five months. Not three or four or five years, but months. See? Wow. So that, 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 that's how great that education is. And only a few people, they, they still teach it. There's still ones who do teach it because they learn from others who were great at it. But not as, as much as these scale players, that, uh, scale teachers who are, it's just baloney. It's just baloney music, and that they shouldn't teach that. They should learn their chords and learn how chords move, and learn the back cycle and the front. You know all 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 the things that you're doing in music. It doesn't take long to learn it. It's not that hard if it's taught right. See, so that 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 that's why that that's why when I finally got back in the in the teaching, I had my hands full. But not only that, but they made bases so heavy mm -hmm. that they, they crippled people. And then you had ignorance in teachers that don't know the fingering of bass is different than the fingering on guitar. It's sure it's frets, but look at the size of the frets on the bass and the size of your strings and size of your neck and everything. And they didn't know that the, that the third and fourth fingers are attached by the same ligament. And so you had one guy that made a video trying to unattach the, the third and fourth finger trying to work together. So he, he didn't know that they were attached. And, and, and he crippled many, many people with his video. Oh. Uh, you, you finger with the one, two, and four. Sometimes you use the third finger. But you will use the third finger if you're playing jazz patterns real fast up in up high on the neck where the frets are so wide apart. Sure. See, so you have uh, you have uh, many things against a young player in in 2000. You had heavy basses. You had people teaching the wrong technique, and, and you had the wrong fingering and and the wrong ideas for jazz. So it, it I don't see how how anyone could could have learned anything. So when I moved back to Los Angeles, I, I had my hands full trying to undo some of the damages that, that the teachers were doing it in those times, you know. But anyway, it, it, it's pretty common to know these things now. But you see the problem with bass players, it, it's because it was a new instrument back in the 60s. It's mm -hmm. a brand new instrument, practically. Oh, my God. And this is only part one, guys. We still have another part of this episode coming out next week. We're not even done yet. Carol Kay, thank you so much for coming onto this podcast and literally making my dreams come true. I know that we don't know each other very well, but 
This literally has made my life. And I'm so excited that there's still more to come. This is so cool. All right, friends. So do me a favor. Head over to Patreon. Subscribe. And while you're at it, head over to iTunes and Spotify. And please leave us a review. We would greatly appreciate it. More Carol K coming at you next week. We will see you then, friends. <laughs>